This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Got a massive show coming up this morning, coming up a bit later in this hour. We're going to be chatting to Executive Director of Refugee Legal, David Mann. He pops in from time to time to bring us up to speed with a range of issues uh, affecting refugees and asylum seekers. And we very sad take them. France and Spain have, have agreed to take some of those people. And also over in the US, the Trump administration has been heavily criticised for removing thousands of children from their families as it launches a crackdown on its southern border region. So we'll be chatting about a whole range of issues with David Mann. He's, of course, very well-versed in in these matters and it's always great to have him on the show. Also coming up this morning, going to be playing up back an interview I did with Jonathan Miller over the past few days. His Channel 4 uh, News Asia correspondent and has recently put out a book called Duterte Harry, Fire and Fury in the Philippines. It's a biography of sorts of that Philippines president who's made headlines for the brutal campaign he's waged on drug users and drug addicts over there and um, I guess also for the aspersions he's cast on world leaders such as Barack Obama and Pope Francis as well. I had a really good chat with Jonathan and I look forward to bringing you that just after 10 this morning. Also going to uh, be speaking to Francesca Dominello. She's a lecturer in the Macquarie Law School and Macquarie University, all about an article she's co-authored in Inside Story on the changes to the family law system. You might have heard over the past few weeks that Attorney General Christian Porter announced that the family court would be abolished. It's going to be amalgamated with the Federal Circuit Court of Australia. And um going to be chatting to Francesca about what that means. I suppose if you're not working in the legal profession or haven't really um, encountered the legal system yourself, you might not be too certain about what these changes mean and, and why they come about. And Francesca's article in Inside Story does a great job of kind of thrashing that out and making it very clear to understand for those of us who aren't so well-versed in these issues. Also coming up at 11.15, going to have some live music with Lachlan Denton. You might know his work with the likes of the Ocean Party. Siggy Witch has just put out his first solo LP called Two Months in Ben Woolley's Room. It's always great to have Locke on the show and going to get a live song out of him as well. And then coming up very soon... I'm going to be chatting with Dorina Poyani, who's a senior lecturer in urban planning at the University of Queensland, all about the death of the O-bike in Melbourne, those yellow bicycles that were kind of strewn all across city streets and, and creeks, waterways, and even tied up in trees at times. Well, their time is up. It's been announced over the past a week or so, the Singaporean company responsible for the venture will be pulling out. So we're going to be talking all about that issue with Dorina very soon. And... That is Kaja Bonet from last week's fantastic triple R album of the week, Child Queen. Mother may be the name of that track. Before that, we heard from Monwa and Son Heartbeat from a compilation called Gumba Fire, Bubblegum Soul and Synth Boogie in 1980s South South Africa. That was released back in March, put out by the UK's Soundway Records and kicked off with Talking Heads. Girlfriend is better from the live album Stop Making Sense. It's uh, just gone 22 minutes past nine. You're tuned to the grapevine with Dylan this morning flying solo. Coming up just after these announcements, going to be talking to Dorina Poyani from the University of Queensland all about the ill-fated O-Bike scheme. Just a year into its lifespan, it seems that the O-Bike is dead, for Melbourne at least. No more will you see those yellow bicycles strewn across city streets, submerged in creeks and waterways and tied up in trees. The Singaporean company responsible for the venture informed Melbourne City Council of the, the decision last week, shortly after the Environmental Protection Authority announced strict new rules 
rules and fines for abandoned bikes. And while this marks the end of this particular venture, it doesn't mean the death of bike share schemes altogether, at least according to Darina Poyani, Senior Lecturer in Urban Planning at the University of Queensland. She's co-authored an article in The Conversation on this very issue and joins us today on the line. Thanks so much for being there, Darina. Thanks for having me. And so it seems that O-bikes were kind of ill-fated from the beginning here in Melbourne. It wasn't long before they were found themselves in, uh, you know, situations where they were in waterways, in, in tied up in trees and the like. Does this suggest that we just can't have nice things down here in Melbourne? Well, uh, I'll, say, I'll say a few things. I mean, as an urban planner, I cannot support cycling enough. I cannot say enough how much more cycling we need in our city. Cycling infrastructure for private bicycles and infrastructure for bike shares. But the problem is that it seems like perhaps dockless bicycles were just ahead of their time. Uh, perhaps to work, they needed to have been supported by some major um awareness raising campaign so mm. people know where to park them and you know not to vandalize them uh, but it might be that even with that it might be that our cities just cannot support dockless bike sharing and i say that because it's not just a melbourne issue um dockless bike sharing has been tried in other cities around the world well in singapore itself they're having where which is the birth country of the scheme, they're having to resort to this technology called geofencing mm. for bike for dockless bike shares that creates a sort of dock, invisible dock around the bicycle. And even in Amsterdam, which is arguably the world's capital for cycling, they've had many cases of vandalism whenever they've adopted dockless bikes. So yeah, it might just be that the Earth's population <laughs> is not ready for docklessness. We need Yes, so that the kind of level of vandalism and, and the, I guess, the responsibility with which people treated this scheme, was that similar in other countries around the world to what we saw here in Melbourne? Yeah, it sounds like it was pretty similar. I mean, in Munich too, which um, Germany is also a country that's used to cycling, they they do it and they like it and they like to promote it. But Munich, they had to um, withdraw a dockless scheme because it just wasn't working because of the because of the vandalism. Yeah, and so the dockless scheme you talk about, because this, of course, is where I guess O bikes are different from the existing bike share scheme, the publicly run bike share scheme we have in Melbourne, where where there are docks. And one criticism of that, um, particularly in the early part, was that it wasn't all that accessible for people. That the docks weren't in, I guess, enough locations, and, and as a result, the the use mm-hmm. rates of that particular scheme weren't all that high. So, so what is, I guess, the the solution to that? Do we simply need uh, a system where there are docks in more places yes um so more docks are needed for sure and then another issue is what we call in transportation planning the balancing of the docks um which means that you need in each dock you need to have at any given time and there are mathematical models on how to do that but um at any given time you need to have enough bicycles for rent but then you also need enough 
free spaces for people to park their bike if they're returning it in that spot. And what we see with dockless schemes is um, this distinction between uh, what we call source kind of stations and sink kind of stations. And source stations tend to be located same places, you know, that are very popular in hilly cities like Brisbane where, where I live. Mm. They tend to be on top of hills. So then people tend to pick up their bikes from stations that are sort of at higher altitude, but then they don't want to return them there because then it means they have to bicycle uphill. So then they tend to return them to stations that are uh, downhill, which means those stations tend to be full. You can um, rarely find a place to park your bicycle if you wanted to return it. And uh, sore stations, they tend to be empty, so you can't find a bike to rent from those. So the issue of balancing is also important in addition to the total number of stations provided. And and so how has the the bike share scheme worked in Brisbane, despite, I guess, some of those issues? Has it been widely taken up by people in that city? Um, It has been. It's um, relatively popular. I mean, you see people biking around, but I have to say it is not a profitable scheme. And this is um, most often the case with bike share. Um, they, They tend to be non-profitable or maybe they break even or they make a small profit. It's not, these are not huge money-making schemes. So perhaps we need to let go of the idea of seeing bike share as a commercial enterprise that will make a lot of money to its owner um, and see it as a public amenity, something that we need for other reasons. We need it to make our cities more livable. We need to reduce pollution. We need to replace some car-based commute with cycle-based commute. But um, to just... Um, not consider it as, you know, this major capitalistic enterprise. Because I know that in the case of the O-Bike scheme, that was one of the criticisms. People that are very um, you know, anti-capitalistic, they'd say, oh, this is a commercial enterprise, and here they're like Uber. They're using public sidewalks. Um, for private gain, but we need to be aware that there isn't a huge amount of gain to be made with bike sharing. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting point you make that that commercial nature of, of ventures like Obike because I'm imagining mm-hmm. that it was the the fines that were to be imposed for abandoned bikes, which was a you know a large reason for the company deciding mm-hmm. to, to get out of Melbourne, and um, as well as I guess taking up public space on on sidewalks and the like. It's also largely councils who might bear the brunt of, of cleaning up the mess when people you know dump them in in waterways and put them in trees and and that sort of like and vandalise them. It's often not so much that the private company who is initially at least held responsible for that it's the the councils and 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 governments who of course are funded through um by taxpayers who need to clean this up well that's that's true that's uh what happened to all bikes is what we call the tragedy of the commons something that's commonly used like the sharing economy a lot of goods are commonly used it ends up being like it's nobody's um, property, and then people end up mistreating it and vandalizing it. So there is that side of it, but then we also need to think about the fact that cars are ubiquitous in our cities. We see cars everywhere. They take up huge amounts of road space. They take um, uh, take up huge amounts of parking space so to store them. And yet that's normalized in our society. We see it as something that um, that we just do. We see it as um, a sort of obligation for cities to accommodate 
private vehicles. Mm. And when you think of the balance, cars take up a whole lot more space than all bikes were taking. Whereas this relatively small amenity like all bikes was seen as this um, major harm to the city of Melbourne. So I'm not, I'm, I don't even want to judge whether it was right or wrong for the city to, um, to impose such high fines, but just think of the balance, how much space cars take and why we as a society have decided that that's okay and that's normal and how much space bike sharing is taking in general, just think of that ratio for a moment. Yeah, absolutely. And with, um, you know, populations really exploding in, in places like Melbourne, that uh, the importance of being able to get around easily enough and, and making sure that we have the amenity to do so is a really big talking point and it's set to be in the future as well. We're speaking with Dorina Poyani, Senior Lecturer in Urban Planning at the University of Queensland, all about bike share schemes and in particular the news that the O-Bike will be leaving Melbourne. And you've lived and worked in a range of different countries Arena, including yeah. the likes of Albania, Belgium, Italy, the Netherlands and, and the USA. I wonder, I guess, based on your experience in other cities and, and the research you've conducted there, what sort of models have you seen that could, uh, I guess, lead to us having a more cycling-friendly city here in Melbourne and also what type of model of bike share scheme would be the best one for us? Okay, so um, the role models for cycling at the moment um, still remain Northern European countries with Holland, the Netherlands leading, and then other places are emerging like um, Denmark and Germany. And then in Asia, we're seeing more cycling uptake in China. Hopefully China will be um, going back to being the bicycle kingdom like it used to be at the height of socialism. Um, and there is a lot we can learn from these places, but I think the big lesson is that the uptake of cycling does not happen spontaneously. Cities need to really make an effort to make it happen by providing infrastructure, by investing in cycling, but then also by applying policy measures to restrict car ownership and driving. They need to go, both things need to go hand in hand, otherwise cycling will always remain sort of a marginal mode that people do for recreation, or maybe it's only certain people like the uh, young, male, um, healthy, fit people that um, that will cycle, and then the rest of the people will just um, be driving around. So that's that's the main lesson. Um, effort and money needs to go into cycling mm. for for people to take it up. And now that that O Bike is leaving Melbourne, there's um, been reports that the Beijing Beijing based company Mobike is planning to start operations mm. down here in Melbourne. Do you know much much about them? And and if so, do you have kind of an idea as to whether that that model might be successful? Well, it looks like I mean, seeing this first experience with all bikes, it looks like the next generation of bike share will just have to be docked in Melbourne. We can't have, you know, um, deja vu all over again, uh, similar scenario to, to all bikes, because that also brings a lot of um, fatigue for people. You know, if dockless schemes are tried and then they fail, it can make people just, um, it can put to put people off bike sharing altogether. So I'd say the next company, maybe they should just try um, a more conventional dock scheme. Although that entails more investment because it means you have to build stations as opposed to a dockless bike share where you could just buy the bicycles and 
um, hope people will park them in appropriate publicly provided bike parking places. Yeah, it's 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 a really interesting question, and I guess when uh, if and when Mobike arrives on our streets, I think they're orange in colour, so they'll they'll certainly stand out. We'll see um, how Melbournians take to them. Thanks so much for joining us today on Triple R, Doreen. It's been fascinating. Thank you. Joanna Poyani there, Senior Lecturer in Urban Planning at the University of Queensland, talking all about bike share schemes in the wake of the announcement that O-Bike will be leaving Melbourne. It is Refugee Week and over the past few days we've learned of yet another tragic death in Australia's offshore detention camps. This time it was 26-year-old Iranian asylum seeker Fariboz K who reportedly took his own life while interned at the Nauru Regional Processing Centre. This death came after another just three weeks ago on Manus Island when a Rohingya refugee reportedly lost his life to suicide. And these mark the 12th deaths related to people's detention in offshore processing centres since they were reopened back in 2012. Internationally, we've also seen a standoff between European countries after Italy refused to take in refugees stranded on boats off its coastline. And over in the US, the Trump administration has been heavily criticised for removing thousands of children from their families as it launches a crackdown on its southern border region. To talk about some of these issues and always so much more, it's great to have David Mann in the studio. He's executive director at Refugee Legal and regular Triple R commentator on such issues. David, great to have you back at the station. Yeah, good morning. And it's never really, I guess, under happy circumstances that we're talking, given the Australian government's, um, you know, draconian offshore detention regime. Had another death over the past few days. It's clear still that the reality for, of life for people in Australia's offshore camps is not really getting any better. It's just another absolutely tragic um, death uh, of someone who, uh, and Farabors, uh, 26-year-old Iranian man who... The fact is he came to our country seeking safety um, in fear and then was exiled uh, to the most cruel and inhumane conditions on Nauru where he was left to languish for years on end and then lost his life. And the, the fact is that it should never have come to this. Uh, it, it was utterly avoidable. He should never have been left in that situation. He should never have been sent there. And, you know, every day of the week... Dylan, every day of the week, uh, people are left uh, being crushed in this cruel limbo on Nauru and on Manus Island and every day of the week on what is really an indefinite emergency, um, we see the human toll and the crushing toll that this takes and Faribor's, uh has lost his life. But, you know, every day of the week, um, uh, this government, the Australian government, uh, has alternatives to this. It could be evacuating these people to New Zealand for, for years now. New Zealand has said we'll take 150 people mm. per year. You know, we could be taking them. Um, that, that is, that would be actually upholding our obligations. But the reality is that it's not happening. And the reality is it could. And the responsibility for this, uh, falls squarely on the Australian government. It is no good, uh, in media releases, in some sort of Fl- b- banal flourish, you know, b- banal statement <clears throat> to be suggesting that all inquiries should be directed toward the Nauruan government. Not good enough. I'm sorry. The fundamental responsibility uh, from day one uh, when Faribors sought asylum in Australia was Australia because we are a signatory to the Refugees Convention and we have agreed, therefore, to make sure uh, that if anyone seeks safety in our country, that we do not, that we examine their claims and we do not 
uh, expel them to a situation where they could be exposed to further danger, and that's exactly what happened. Mm. And these instances of, 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 of individuals losing their lives, when we hear about them, the, the guardians in particular reported about, I guess, his situation, his family, and also also the existing mental health issues he had even before he he you know wound up on Nauru. Which, of course, many people fleeing persecution in other countries have existing trauma they're dealing with at the time, and then find themselves in these camps for an indefinite period of time, which simply can't bode well for their mental health but when we have these situations and and we hear about them do these at all start to build i guess a, a larger case for the government not being able to get away with this type of regime well um at a moral level it is utterly unconscionable what we're doing it is actually a stain on the nation's soul um we, we are as a nation, uh, we will not be complete until we resolve this issue. There are a number of issues, I have to say, at the moment that um, will uh, we will not be complete as a nation until we properly confront and resolve um, the, the the cruelty um, toward other people and uh, to, toward asylum seekers, toward people seeking asylum. That is one of the central issues in our nation, and um, and and the fundamental question is um, how we treat vulnerable people. Um, who uh, uh, seek um, our help and who have every right uh, to do so. I would start actually with the, the, the simple moral right uh, to, to to seek safety, to escape uh, brutality and to seek safety and to have those, those claims examined under due process. But there is also the legal question, which I know that you've been, you're pointing to there. And um, uh, there's no doubt that Australia has um, been uh, in systematic uh, and serious violation of uh, of its obligations to people seeking asylum for years. Yeah, and the, the legal question, I think, I mean, it's an interesting one because it's around about, I think, a year since... Uh, the class action was, was settled on those asylum, 1,700 asylum seekers who claimed they'd been unlawfully detained. I understand earlier this month that $70 million was, was fully paid out to those people as part of that class action. Now, of course, there wasn't an admission of liability. This was, was settled for those asylum seekers. But could something like this happen again, do you think? And, and, and look, look, it could well. Sorry, did, did you want no. to... Yeah, look, it could well. There could well be further legal cases. Uh, and, um, look, there is an importance in, in that case and in other cases that have been brought in relation to offshore processing uh, successfully, and, and some of them have, of course, been unsuccessful. But there is an importance in those that have uh, that, that have been successful like this one in the sense that it does highlight uh, this settlement uh, that there is um, something uh, very, very wrong uh, in a legal sense. And one would hope that people would extrapolate and say that the underpinning of those legal obligations also has is about humanity. Mm. But the problem here, of course, is uh, uh, that although that does provide some form of compensation to people recognising, uh, undoubtedly, despite whatever denials in a settlement the government might um, issue, it undoubtedly does point to the government uh, thinking that it may well um, be liable. Uh, but you see, the real question is, what do you do with, a, with you know, uh, you know uh, tens of thousands of dollars, uh, if, that, if that's what you got, if you are stuck in this cruel limbo uh, without any hope for the future, without any prospect of, of resettlement to safety in the near future and continuing to be crushed? And that's the big question. So it's not to criticise in any sense the uh, legal cases that seek to redress these injustices, mm. but actually at their heart they're not going to what ultimately is needed and that is urgent evacuation to safety so that people can rebuild their lives. Let me put it as bluntly as this, Dylan. 
you know, twenty, thirty thousand dollars uh, what do you do with it if you have nowhere to go and you're uh, being crushed uh, in such inhumane circumstances. So I think that the real question is how do we how do we get these people to safety? Mm, absolutely. And and I guess um, coming to, to back home and people with refugees, asylum seekers living in our community, the government announced last year changes to the status resolution support services, so payments provided to refugees. Um, but it's still, as I understand, coming into effect, into effect for groups of asylum seekers in our community. How is this impacting on your work at Refugee Legal? And what do you hearing from people in terms of the impact of those cuts? Yeah, well, look, we, as, as you know, we help thousands and thousands of people subject to these uh, policies every year. In fact, you know, last year um, alone, um, we gave assistance, um, you know, for, to uh, around 14,000 people in, in the sense of people seeking asylum and and also um, in the general migration area, vulnerable migrants. But look, thousands and thousands of those people that we're helping have uh, been um, waiting in limbo for years, as you know, having uh, seeking asylum, having come by boat. Uh, and this is the situation that we're, we're looking at at the moment, the main situation, that they're going now through the process, this fast-track process that uh, finally the government uh, allowed them to apply and to go through this process. Now, the real question here with this SRS change is what um, supports will be available for them, basic supports as they go through that process. For a number of years, the government has provided a modicum of support, uh, including uh, support, uh, income support, which is, uh, uh, you know, less than um, New Start allowance. 80% of That's right, Start around 80, 89%, so it's a very low, mm-hmm. but it's a modicum of support. Uh, also, some access to torture trauma counselling. Many of the people, as you highlighted before, have come from very traumatic situations. And, uh, and need help, uh, and also basic housing um, support. Now, um, what the government has announced recently is that thousands of people will be stripped of those basic supports uh, and be left to fend for themselves, and that creates the a really, really an emergency situation uh, of the real the, the, the prospect of thousands and thousands of people going through the process, uh, the legal process, and potentially facing de- destitution. Um, we're helping many of those people to to look at strategies. Uh, with the sector and actually with the broader community uh, where if they are stripped of those benefits, as some have already been, uh, that they um, that they're cared for, but it is a, a very, there is no easy solution to this. Mm. And actually, I think at the end of the day, if the government fully implements this as it's intending to do, it says um, it's going to fall on the community at the end of the day to really to to stand up and to say we're not going to put up with it. We, this is this is actually a, you know, a question of conscience. Uh, uh, you know, that people who've sought safety in our country been left in limbo for years should not be cut off from basic support. They should actually be able to access those basic supports living in our community while they go through the process. Can I also just add one thing? Not that it actually is a central point here, um, but um, these people we not only have obligations to in a, in a very fundamental sense, both moral and legal, but that ma- many of these people um, are, are likely to also be found to be refugees. They're, they're people that are not going to be able to go back. And what we're doing here, whether they um, are able to stay or not, not my, my judgment would be that most will. Um, they're, they're fleeing from you know, very real dangers. But... This is imposing another wave of suffering on people that we actually have 
basic duties to it. Mm. Mm. Just tuned in, we're speaking with David Mann, Executive Director at Refugee Legal. This week is Refugee Week. World Refugee Day is coming up this coming Wednesday and we're talking about a range of issues. Um, in particular, I guess we started off this conversation talking about the tragic death of another asylum seeker, Faribor's K, who lost his life in Nauru over the past week. And we've heard a kind of diplomatic stoush in, in Europe as Italy's refused to take in uh, people off boats off its coastline and also over in the US. They Amazing stories we're hearing from there with around 2,000 children having been separated from their families in and around the southern border as part of a sort of crackdown on what the government's calling illegal entries. And we don't really have the time to go into to those cases in detail at all. But I guess bringing it back to Australia and where we go from here, we've got, mm. we've got a federal election coming up quite soon. We've seen views and, and people kind of harden their stance towards refugees in different pockets of the world recently. Do you see that there is there hope for kind of the generosity of Australians, I guess, to advocate for or accept some kind of solution that's not this very hardline, indefinite offshore detention that we've seen both major parties commit to over the past number of years. Yeah, let, let's go to the, just quickly to, to you know, two, I think, really graphic examples of the, the, the broad international crisis. And uh, that was the, the, those um, people uh, in, in the sea, around 800 um people at sea, um, you know, seeking safety um, the in Europe and Italy saying, no, turning them away, essentially repelling them. Um, that is, that, that evokes another um, incident uh, which really captured the international, uh, you know, attention uh, a, a number of years ago in the Ottoman Sea mm. uh, when Rohingya, largely it was Rohingya, who were literally stranded for weeks uh, when um, countries uh, like you know, Thailand, etc., were saying no, we won't take them. Eventually, they were taken. Um, there was a sort of an international effort uh, to to take them in, and this again is the same situation. A very similar type of d- different geopolitical issue, you know, in one sense, but in a broader sense, what we're looking at here is a trend internationally uh, um, amidst the global humanitarian crisis, uh, where countries are increasingly putting up, uh, erecting fences, building walls. Um, yeah, border protection, closing, closing their borders. And, um, and that is at the end of the day, uh, a very powerful illustration of the broader problem. I think it's also worth noting that the problem is not um, intractable. Actually, um, it is Spain and together with France that have come to the rescue and actually it's an act of humanity which Mm. needs to be recognised. And Italy have also been criticised, sharply criticised by these countries. That's very important because because what we do see is those countries, Spain and France, essentially taking up Italy's responsibilities. It shouldn't have come to that, Mm. uh, but they have taken them up. That's the fundamental fact and that means they're rendering help and rescue to these people. As New Zealand has in the case of Australia as well. That's know. right, that's right. Um, but but so <clears throat> it's very important to note that uh, that pe- these people have uh, ended up being, being rescued and that as part of that, other countries have assumed the obligations and the responsibilities that Italy had. Coming to the US example very quickly too, I mean, that is barbaric. I mean, the, the basic point is that the US has a policy where asylum seekers fleeing over the, into their into their country with children, having the children ripped away from them, literally ripped away from them. The parents are being detained uh, uh, for prolonged periods uh, while while the, the ch- they're ripped away from their parents. It is frankly barbaric and is causing a major 
Uh, it's a major controversy in, in the US, which remains unresolved. Um, but w- again, what we're seeing here is another the sharp end of border protection policies, of deterrence policies. Let's be frank about it. This is a policy in the US, like the like Italy's approach, which is all focused on deterring people, which takes its eye off or has actually is not interested in the basic humanity of the people mm. in front of them. And uh, that's the problem that that, that, that we're looking at. The Australian context. Now, I'm going to say something which might sound controversial in this context. <laughs> it ahead. shouldn't. It shouldn't, but it might. And, it, and that is that I actually, every day of the week, people people say to me, "Ah, oh, is this you know, is this a lost cause, the refugee cause?" In the end, you know, we see the SRSS issue that you've just raised. We see indefinite detention in our country. We see the inhumanity, the gross inhumanity uh, on Nauru and Manus, etc. And on it goes, temporary protection visas, you know, in Australia, leaving people in a twilight world of limbo, re-traumatised in our community as refugees. And I could add to it. But does that mean it's a lost cause? Well, I say no. Every day of the week, I say not only is it not a lost cause, see, the lost cause argument is, aren't we, isn't this demonstrating that we are a mean-spirited, xenophobic, racist people. I say every day of the week, um, no, actually, I believe the opposite. Actually, I don't think that people wake up in Brunswick or in, you know, in Broome or Rockhampton and go, gee, I, I, I just hope that that asylum seeker child, I hope that that child seeking asylum and their parents are sent to Nauru to be crushed. I don't think that's the case. Mm. Um, what I actually think is also, I don't think that we are a nation divided on the question of refugees. I think that this is the politics, the politics of it, this interminable political jousting over who can be tougher toward innocent people seeking our help, the interminable um, political jousting, the politicisation of this issue has in a way conjured up this notion that we're a nation divided. But actually, I actually would argue the opposite. I would argue that we are actually a, a nation that fundamentally supports the principle of refugees coming here, right? A couple of years ago, when, in fact, not long ago, it was, it was even more recent, one of the major studies, probably the, the most substantial study in Australia each year of, of, uh, of, of the, the attitudes toward refugees being resettled to Australia found that 80% of Australians support uh, us bringing in refugees, right? And over half of those 80% think that we should lift the intake, you know, and on it goes. I'll give you many examples, mm. but I can tell you one. My, my, my belief uh, in history, if you look at contemporary Australian history on our approach toward refugees, we've resettled over 800,000 refugees in humanitarian entrance, you know. In the Indo-Chinese crisis in the 70s and 80s, we resettled, we flew in over 180,000 refugees. These are some of the golden threads of modern Australian history, right? It's interesting looking back to those times because the types of boat turn-back policies and and mandatory detention and that sort of thing, they were, as I understand, on the table, but the Fraser government decided, no, we're not going to do that. That's against our human rights obligations and and we know what happened with with people being flown to Australia. Yeah, exactly, exactly. They didn't have to get on a boat because they were flown here. And, and, you know, the thing that we've lost sight of, I think, is... Uh, by the way, I just want to add one little thing which is critical. How do you explain the cruelty and the inhumanity and the injustice that we see? I, I, that's a complex issue. Um, but what I don't think um, is whatever mandate, you know, governments, successive governments have claimed, whatever mandate they've claimed for stopping the boats, right, there has never been a mandate to mistreat people 
in the way that we see. I think that is one of the great national falsehoods. And I believe that actually we are, as a people, as a people, um, not the politics I'm talking about for a minute, but the people, as a people, we are, uh, uh, there is a driving generosity of spirit in the community. Um, there's a driving interest in coming up with something better and alternatives which move away from, you know, accusing people who are anxious and fearful uh, as rednecks, racists and warlords of darkness, right? And actually, the, the, we haven't had a proper dialogue in this country about what are some humane, decent, fair alternatives on refugee policy. Mm. And we need to because I think there is a deep desire to reconcile on this issue and to actually uh, a, a deep driving generosity of spirit in our country to to actually have a, a humane response to, to the ref, to the refugee issue. Yeah, and, and given that we have an election coming up soon, you could argue that it's it's really the Labor Party's responsibility to take up that mantle given things aren't likely to change under the co- current coalition government. Well, it's actually everyone's responsibility, well, you know, at the end of the day, but I know what you mean. In, in terms, terms of the, the politics, representation yes, of politics. in terms of the way it's been defined, that's right. I mean, it's no no doubt the coalition government at the moment um, uh, see, um, see, you know, sort of, uh, you know, this extremity of deterrence policy and the cruelty and harm and injustice that it brings as somehow uh, central to its policy and in an intractable way. Mm. I don't. Um, I mean, you just need to look at the offer that New Zealand's given to, to rescue people who are who are who are being crushed and and dying. You know, and uh, but yeah, but I think it's actually what I'm really pointing to. You can point to a political party, sure. What I'm talking about is actually um, our community. You know, us actually exercising not only the, our conscience but acting on it. You know, that's mm. an, an, en masse because I really do mean this, that um, I, I don't see um, that that that, uh, that there is a driving, um, mean-spirited, um, you know, approach to refugees in the community at all. I do see fear. I do see anxiety. Um, that's no doubt. But that's something to be addressed. I mean, the question of um, who, you know, the question of how people come here um how many we take in, um, issues like that, um, who we take, they're questions that need to be addressed. Okay, there are laws about this, there are there are principles, there are broader policy questions, but that doesn't mean we're a nation divided on whether we should take mm. in refugees, and that's what I think we need to that's get right. back to, you know? Yeah, it's a different question really. It is, but it's the big question. Absolutely. You know? Do we support refugees coming here? Well, we do. Our history tells us that the research tells us and I think, again, going back to when we wake up in the morning, I don't think Australians on mass wake up in the morning um, and go and think, geez, how do we harm refugees? How do we harm people seeking asylum? I don't think that's that's a driving no, interest. I think the opposite and, is. And yeah. when you hear of yet another death in one of our offshore camps, as we've had over the past week, it, it's hard to think of anyone who could think that's a, a good outcome from the policy that we have in place at the moment. We're mm. fast running out of time, David Mann, sure. um, but I do want to point to an event you've got coming up this coming Wednesday for World Refugee, D- World Refugee Day, which sounds um, really fascinating, coming up at Melbourne Town Hall. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, well, look, it, uh, it came out of a it came out of a nudge um, we were you know sort of uh, heads down helping thousands of people as usual and uh, doing many other things work for change and then out of the blue this came it was actually only start about a week ago and it's um the momentum is building um you know there are still a few tickets left uh, they're free by the way uh, it's melbourne town hall Gillian Triggs, who everyone will know, uh, together with Erica Feller, who is Australian. She uh, was the second in charge of the UNHCR, UN Refugee Agency in Geneva for years and is one of the most knowledgeable people on, on inter- the international scene with refugees and still deeply involved. 
and she's got a chair at Melbourne Uni and myself. So the three of us in conversation, Helen Kaplos, who's the chairperson of the Victorian Multicultural Commission, will be facilitating. It's uh, it, it's basically an, a free event at lunchtime, 12.30, Melbourne Town Hall, Swanson Room, and there are a few tickets left, but you've got to book, so get online and book. And we're, what we're really going to have a, have a go at, uh, you know, and confront is how do we rebuild refugee policy what you know look at what, what are the fundamentals to actually rebuild the refugee policy here and and internationally it's exactly the type of conversation we need to have and, and people need to be engaged with here in australia so um so getting quick if you want to head along to that tickets are free but you do need to register it's called it's time where to from here on refugee policy and i'm sure there's details on the refugee legal yeah. website and elsewhere yeah yeah and there'll be lunch too oh, uh, yeah. getting get in yeah. <laughs> um and also of course it's coming up to the end of the financial year a refugee Legal can always do with some more donations to help them with the amazing work they do. So you can head to their website for more details on how to make a donation. I've been chatting with David Mann, Executive Director of Refugee Legal. Always great to have you in the studio and we'll catch you next time. Thanks a lot. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.